Hey everyone, this is James Lindsay, and you're listening to the New Discourses podcast. And what I want to actually do today is break down some activist strategy for you. I did a short bullet episode not terribly long ago here on the on, on New Discourses Bullets, where I broke down the idea of the concept of beautiful trouble, which is a book, which is the activist training manual that they actually use that's derived from and advancing from Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky, which was written in the 1960s um, or 70s, maybe. And I broke down this idea that your the one idea that your target's reaction is your real action. That's the title of one of these articles, okay? So one of the tools. So I want to encourage everybody before I get too far to go when you get a chance to beautifultrouble.org. That's beautifultrouble.org. Go there and look at what they have. They have stories, they have of, of successful activism, they have tactics, they have principles, they have all kinds of stuff about how to be a woke activist. Turns out, if we want to stop them at their woke activism, we probably need to know how they're doing it so that we can identify the manipulations and call them out in real time. It's actually shockingly powerful, shockingly powerful, to call out a manipulative abuse for what it is with descriptions of how it works. People are always like, what do I do to fight back? What do I do to fight back? I did a podcast on this in the bullets also called Name the Dynamic. You have no idea how powerful it is to name the dynamic, to say this is what you're doing and how you're doing it so that people realize it's a manipulation. Because when people realize it's a manipulation, a lot of things happen at once. So one of the things that happens is they realize they're being manipulated. People don't like being manipulated. They will turn on a manipulator when they realize that they're being manipulated. The way that leftist activism works is that it works in a cloud of ignorance. They have a watching audience. There's always a third party watching audience that they are depending on that doesn't know the context of what's actually happening. And they manipulate the fact by taking the circumstances or the events out of context to make it look like something happened that isn't what happened at all. And they move the football down the field while people are confused off of the support of the ignorant audience that has been manipulated into believing that they were the good actor when they weren't. This is actually laid out, and this is what this episode is going to be. I'm going to go through three of the essays on Beautiful Trouble that I think go together very, very well. One of them is the real action is your target's reaction. So we can understand what that means. It's very simple, but I'm going to read the whole thing and explain it to you. Your real action, meaning the actual point of their activism, is to get people to react. Okay? I want you to understand that. They want you to react. There are a number of ways they might want you to react. They might want you demoralized. I've talked about demoralization in the past. They want you to be dejected, depressed, exhausted. They want you to give up. They want you to think it's impossible. That's a reaction, but that's not necessarily what it means. They might want you to be angry or violent or to actually respond more uh, pressingly to a direct provocation. This is where that cloud of ignorance in the watching audience becomes so important. Remember, their activism depends on a watching audience. They always are engaging in what's called performative activism. They are performing all the world's a stage, or as Judith Butler would have summarized it, life is drag and drag is life. It's 
all a performance. So they are putting on a show to convince a watching audience to support them and not you, which means they need to make you look bad. There are two general ways to make you look bad. One way is to make you look weak or stupid or evil or crazy that you've just, you just have to sit, especially weak, you just take it, right? What this is, and I've talked about this in other episodes of the podcast before, is undermining your authority. If they make you look weak, they undermine your integrity as a person. You're not somebody, somebody who folds is not somebody you can depend on. So people lose respect for you if you let them provoke you and you don't do anything about the provocation. You just accept the provocation. You let them get away with it. That's part of it. We'll come back to these ideas in a second. Another is that they undermine your intellectual authority. They try to make you look stupid, like this complex idea that's in front of you. You're the one who doesn't understand it. Or they try to undermine your moral authority. You must be a bad person for some reason for not supporting their cause. You must not care about the poor trans kids who will commit suicide if they don't all get to have puberty blockers that destroys their life. They try to make you look like an evil person while in fact they are evil. Or they might try to make you look crazy. So it's, they want, in other words, you're a conspiracy theorist. You believe crazy things. That's not happening, but it's good if it, it would be good if it was. You're crazy. Nobody's doing that. There's absolutely no reason to pass a law to block, blah, 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 because nobody's doing that. Only a crazy person would think that. Only a conspiracy theory would think, a spirit theorist would think that this is what's happening. So they undermine your, your, your psychological authority by getting people to believe maybe you're crazy. They undermine your moral authority by getting people to believe that you're evil. This is all by controlling the framing around the situation and the ignorance of the, the watching audience, because that's who they're trying to influence or to get you to believe it yourself and drop out, demoralize. Maybe it's that they want you to believe or get other people to believe that you don't know what you're talking about, that they're smarter than you. And so they have to be the ones to be listened to. And you're just some hillbilly moron and they're undermining your intellectual authority or your epistemic authority, or maybe they just get you to cave in and they provoke you, but they don't provoke you hard enough so that you respond. So you look weak. They put library books in and nobody says anything. They, um, you know, put a drag queen and we say, well, just don't take your kids and just ignore it. And you don't respond. And it just keeps happening. The pride events just keep getting more and more gratuitous. This is a pattern that they're doing. And it's based off of the idea that your reaction is their real action. The things that the left is doing are unpopular. They are always unpopular. In fact, they're often vigorously unpopular once people see what they really are. And we know this is true with woke. Actually, a very small percentage of the population actually endorses a lot of what they're doing. It's very unpopular. It doesn't make sense. When they start coming out and trotting out fetish gear at Pride and sexual activity in front of kids and drag queens being provocative, most people, most of the time, don't like this. The only people who support it are people who have something going on to where they're really invested in it, people who are paid to do it, or people who are so desperate to prove that they're not one of those bad, evil, awful, stupid crazy conspiracy theorist conservatives that they're signaling to their friends and through what's something that's called preference falsification. Most people don't support it. So the only way that it makes sense, and these people that are right on the edge that are going to start tipping out of support from these more egregious things, it only makes sense against a reaction. If you react badly and they frame it out that you reacted badly for what looks like to a low information, low engagement onlooker, for no good reason, all of a sudden, look, there's rising anti-LGBTQ hate everywhere. We need more activism for the poor gay kids or whatever else. Their activism only makes sense against out-of-context, misunderstood reaction. 
they have to create a boogeyman that has to be defeated that's worse than what they're doing. And then it justifies them being provocative to try to push the envelope. That is why the real action is your target's reaction. So I'm going to go through that, but I'm going to combine it with these other themes that I've actually just uh, spelled out for you. Put your target in a decision dilemma. That's another essay on beautiful trouble. That's at beautifultrouble.org. And then escalate strategically. Because I think these three go together to create a very comprehensive program of, of activism that we see again and again and again and again. I think the drag queens, the fetish and, and sexual activity at Pride, the library books in schools, the sexual library books in schools, and the indictments and, and, and things of Donald Trump and the J6 political prisoners all fall within this uh, umbrella. You probably could very easy start to easily start to find other examples where these things are happening would say, for example, the demands to mask now again, or even previously for COVID policy. And so I want to start with this idea that the real action is your target's reaction. I read this actually already before as a bullet, so this is redundant. This is filed under principles. This is a principle in beautiful trouble. Beautiful trouble is the kind of trouble they like to make. And it starts off with a you know, quick, quick little summary. It says, when challenging a more powerful target, so that's who they're going after, somebody who's more powerful, when challenging a more powerful target, the key to success often isn't what you do, but how, to get, how your target reacts to what you do. Therefore, anticipate your target's response and write it into your script. Where do they get this idea? They quote Saul Alinsky, like I said, the real action is in the enemy's reaction. The rest of the article is them kind of explaining this and giving an example, but I want to dwell here. When challenging a more powerful target, this is the principle. You need to get them to react. In other words, they aren't going to make headway unless they make you look like a bully or an oaf or a jerk or violent or crazy. They need you to look that way. The way that this is always going to happen is they are going to take advantage of a largely low engagement and ignorant third party and a complicit, whether it's alt media or whether it's mainstream media, to push out the story in a contorted way that drives their narrative so that the first impression, the low, most low engagement, low information people are not dialed into the culture war and all of the tricks and traps that are happening. They are catching snippets on CNN of crazy stuff that happened and that they're basing their whole opinion off of whatever they saw in the mis, you know, misframed or uh, intentionally badly framed information that they're being given through a compliant media, which might only be alternative media when they're weak, but right now they have the entire mainstream media apparatus plus politicians taking it up. I can't tell you how many people I know who think Donald Trump must be a criminal because the Department of Justice came down. COVID must have been a major public health threat because the CDC said as though the instant, the, the, the legitimacy of the institution instantaneously transfers over and makes whatever thing they say more true. But this is an important aspect in terms of how they operate. They are trying to get you to react. They are trying to get us to react. They're trying to get people against their project, anti-communists or conservatives or Christians or whoever, parents, whatever their target group that they need to nullify, they're trying to get them to react. And then they will use the reaction to nullify them because the real action is in the enemy's reaction. They can make you look bad and discredit you or nullify you with the broader public, the watching audience. 
your goal is going to be to make sure that the watching audience understands the manipulation before you react. If you're going to react, you must react strategically. You must start with a counter information campaign that gives you the clearance to be able to react before you react. Here's an example of what happens when you don't do that. You decide to show up and yell at a school board meeting. If you yell, you're crazy. You look at this unhinged parent. DOJ gets involved. FBI gets involved or whatever. But you go to a school board meeting and maybe even you do a really good job really calmly explaining that you think these pornographic books that they're publishing and putting in the libraries, things, to, things like the uh, American Library Association, which is querying the catalog on purpose, that that those are unacceptable and shouldn't be in front of kids. And then whack, you get slapped with the branding all over the media of book banner. Moms for Liberty wants to ban books. Conservatives want to ban books. Blah, 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 blah. They want to ban books. Well, book banner is a bad word. So they get to slap you with a label and they depended upon, they put out a provocation. They put the books in the, in the library and they depended on the reaction, which you had to react. You had to go say something about these books. But the second you said something about these books, they framed it badly on purpose for their narrative agenda presented to the public as you guys are while you take responsibility for your kids that action is actually banning books and the low information people who end up making a lot of the um, kind of social and cultural and political mandate that politicians then get to ride and, and do things with um, all of that mandate which then also lands on the you know not clearly paying attention, lawyers and judges and other professionals in society, that mandate is all based off of a fabricated narrative that took advantage of your reaction because your reaction was their real action. So here's what they say about it. They say, during the Salt March of 1930, Indian independence activists famously kept walking unarmed and undeterred into the brutal blows of British police. Importantly, the press were there. See, there's the vehicle to move the story to a watching audience. Activists made sure of it. Oh, how about that? So they're going to position a mouthpiece to frame the story the way they want it framed. Activists will make sure that the media is there to frame the story the way they need it framed, and then they're going to portray it to the public. So what happened? During the Salt March, the activists kept walking unarmed and undeterred. So they look like just, we're just going on our march, our protest, and the British police delivered brutal blows against them. That was the reaction. And importantly, the press were there to take this whole scene in a particular context and present it to, to, to the public because activists made sure of it. And the press were there to document the colonial government playing the villain in predictably despicable fashion. The Indian nation rallied to the cause, world public opinion followed. See, they're actually contouring public opinion by provoking a circumstance and then catching it on film and telling the story with the context set. And maybe in this case it was legitimate and maybe it's not, but set so that they tell the story the way they want public opinion to hear the story. And they go on to say organizer, they should say demon, but organizer Saul Alinsky later coined the term political jujitsu to describe actions like this. Confrontations like the Salt March enable under-resourced activist groups to use a powerful opponent's momentum against them by provoking a reaction and then watching them fall flat, literally or figuratively, in front of the cameras. All the world's a stage. You are being set 
up when they engage in a provocation. If they believe that you are the dominant society as a more powerful target, they are setting it up to look bad compared to their silly little demonstration. And they will make sure that the demonstration and what happens as a result, as a reaction or response, is framed in a way so that public opinion follows. How about that? says, when applying this principle, it's important to understand that you can't just hope the target reacts in a way that spotlights the injustice. You want to anticipate your target's likely reactions and design your action to provoke the reaction you want and then incorporate it into your action. If it doesn't work the first time, adjust and try again. We're going to hear that with escalating strategically. But did you hear that? It's not enough to hope they were going to react which is largely kind of what we do in counteractivity against the woke. They know that they can intentionally provoke certain reactions. They can intentionally get the police to act with violence by continually, say, setting off little explosive devices or fire or threatening property or threatening the neighborhoods that, you know, if the police are, are just kind of containing them and they start to threaten people's homes, especially rich people's homes or the suburbs or something, they know they can get a police reaction. They did this in the BLM riots. You want to anticipate your target's likely reactions and design your action to provoke the reaction you want. If you want a drag queen to get attacked by a conservative or a Christian, you start doing things where the provocation looks very much, you know, over the top, very sexual in front of children, or even incorporating religious themes, which we've seen over the last year. You design your reaction to provoke the reaction you want and then incorporate it into your action. And you know that you're going to make sure that the media are there to catch it on film and put the story out the way you want it told before anybody else does. They go on and kind of a pull quote, they say, a good way to ensure you get a strategically useful reaction from your target is to force them into a decision dilemma where all of their available options play to your advantage. So this is why I want to put strategic escalation, this particular uh, tactic, principle of, of using the reaction and the decision dilemma into one pot to understand one activist strategy that's across three different pieces. So that's considered also a principle, by the way, they say, is that putting your target in a decision dilemma. To give you an example of that, they say when the Yes Men, impersonating a spokesperson for Dow Chemical, announced on BBC TV that Dow was apologizing for the Bhopal disaster and allocating $12 billion to compensate the victims, Dow's stock plummeted and they were forced to react. Dow had to issue a statement saying they were not apologizing for the, the Bhopal disaster and would not be comp compensating victims, and that was the big tell. Here, once again, the action, happily and by design, was dwarfed by the target's reaction. So they engaged in a hoax. They fraudulently impersonated a spokesperson, put it out on television, on BBC TV, which is therefore complicit in their activism, and by doing so, forced the chemical company to come out and say, no, that's not what we're doing. That's, we're not participating in that. We're not, we had no intention of doing that. And then made them look bad in front of everybody. And that was the big tell, they said. Here, once again, the action, happily and by design, happily and by design, was dwarfed by the target's reaction, forcing the chemical company to come out and say something that sounded really bad to the public was affected by impersonating such a spokesperson, spokesperson and putting out a lie 
incomplicit activity with the media to a low information audience that didn't know it was being manipulated, which is what in fact forced the uh, chemical company to come out and say something they wanted them to say. They say, as the Dow chemical case illustrates, you don't need a physical confrontation to make good theater. It's all about the performance, which means, again, I reiterate, because we're going to come back to this, there is a watching audience. All leftist activism is a theater production. It is playing off of an audience that has public opinion, that they are trying to shape and mold through distortions and lies. And by getting you to react, which they'll frame out in a way so that the context of what's really happening, the context that this guy was a fraud on TV, for example, became irrelevant because the chemical company had to come out and say something as a result of people reflexively taking up the story based on a media outlet taking up a lie and, and, and putting it out in the world. So you don't need a physical confrontation to make good theater, but what they have to do is make good theater. They're always making theater. It's always a show. If you can show how a magic trick works, it's not cool anymore. It's not mystifying anymore. It's not shocking anymore. In fact, it's kind of dorky and lame. Same thing's happening here. They're doing a theater show with a magic trick to manipulate an audience into believing something happened that didn't happen. If you can expose it, it steals all their thunder. This is important to remember. But the most important thing to remember is there's always a watching audience because this is going to give us options that don't feel like they exist in the decision dilemma. So they go on and say, in 2000, the Bush for President campaign sued activist Zach Exley, who, by the way, if you want a name who's causing lots of problems, who was behind, you know, the, a lot of the squad and the Justice Democrats, you know, the AOC, Cori Bush, those fools... Zach Exley is a name you should probably be aware of. That's Z-A-C-K-E-X-L-E-Y. Zach Exley is worth digging into. During the 2000 uh, Bush for President campaign, it sued activist Zach Exley and tried to shut down his prank website, gwbush.com, another hoax, right? A domain Exley had managed to buy before the campaign had. The press picked up the story, and with each new legal attack, Bush at one point saying there ought to be limits to freedom, there was another wave of press sympathetic to the site and combative toward a hapless dolt who somehow ended up being president for eight years. A sorry reminder that even the cleverest one-off tactic does not a successful campaign make. So again, we have a hoax. They say you don't have to use violence in your theater. You can use a hoax. You can just lie. In this case, Zach actually purchased GWBush.com, put things that were false on it. The campaign sued to make this stop because you can't just ignore it because then they just keep putting out lies that people believe. These stupid freaking parody accounts on Twitter are a good case for this. Oh, they're funny. Ha ha ha. You can't just ignore it, but then the second you take action, you look like a jerk, and they even get Bush quoted saying there ought to be limits to freedom, um, which is a very badly phrased way to say, not that I'm a big George Bush supporter at all, but it's a very badly phrased way to say um, that uh, hoaxes are deliberately manipulative and uh, they're, they're, they're really inappropriate. And, you know, there should be ways to, to have legal retribution for somebody who is defaming you through a parody, uh, through a impersonation. 
limits to freedom. Actually, there are already limits to freedom for defamation. It turns out we cannot defame. That's not protected speech. And parody can fall really close to that line sometimes. As a big fan of parody myself, I'm just saying that that's possible. Passing yourself off as somebody and saying things that they are not saying can actually probably constitute defamation. But they were able to catch him saying a thing. They take this out of context and tell everybody Bush wants to limit freedom and they have a successful campaign. So contrary to popular belief, they tell us when one of the big boys threatens you, and if you use a company's trademark in an action, for example, you can count on a cease and desist letter, you should celebrate you are the David to their Goliath, and you now have the upper hand. So portray yourself as something you're not, put out false information, and when they tell you you need to stop, you say, look, they're bullying me. Because their reaction, which they have to take, is your real action. It says, take their best quotes, weave them into a press release, and voila. You've cast them in your play again and again and again with the theater language. And the timeless logic of jujitsu. Jujitsu is not a theater, by the way. If this was jujitsu, we would be choking them out. There is a viewing audience. Remember that guy, Daniel Penny, who... There's that radical lunatic on the subway, and Daniel Penny put him in a chokehold because he did jujitsu, and then he died later. And then they framed it out that he was like this murderer, and now he's been arrested, and like all this really bad stuff. Yeah, jujitsu wasn't what was relevant there. The jujitsu worked, and it worked really well. What was relevant there was a watching audience that was horrified by what happened in the way the story was told and framed, which conveniently left out. A lot of the parts about the guy, they tried to make him a sympathetic Michael Jackson impersonator, but in fact, he was threatening everybody with, you don't know if he's armed or not. He's threatening everybody on the car, the the subway car, that if he doesn't get his way, some some shit's going to go down. In the timeless logic of jujitsu, you have borrowed some of their power. And if coverage goes your way, and of course you make sure the initial coverage is out of context and going your way because... A lie can get halfway around the world while the truth is getting its pants on. Rumors are harder to unspread than butter. Which cliche do you want at the moment? Um, First impression is everything. If coverage goes your way, you have used their offensive momentum to flip them on their backs. Everyone loves it when Goliath bites the dust. The thing is, is they're actually Goliath. But they're turning it around so that out of context, people won't understand that they, in fact, are the provocateur, the manipulator, and the problem. So the real action is your target's reaction. That's one of their principles. I really want to underscore that you understand that they are acting strategically, that they have a manual, that they practice this, that they're good at it, and that when you start to think about how you might do it back to them, how hard it is, reminds you that they are good at this because they've been doing it for 50 years, and you're not good at it yet. So they mentioned in this that you have to put your target in a decision dilemma to do this. In fact, half of that article wasn't even about reactions. It was about companies and and brands being put in decision dilemmas through hoaxes. The Dow Chemical thing, the GW Bush thing, and uh, the the last thing, I got all tangled up in my Daniel Penny stuff here. All of those use the idea, uh, no, it was just the Bush thing. All of those use the idea that you're putting your target in a decision dilemma. So the way that they get their reaction, your real action is your target's reaction, is by putting the target in a decision dilemma. And this principle 
on beautifultrouble.org has a picture of Gandhi, Gandhi on it, and it references again the salt, mar- salt march. I promise I can speak. Mahatma Gandhi's salt march put the British in a classic decision dilemma in 1930, which is either let them march or don't let them march and crush them when they react. What on earth could that have to do with anything? I don't know if that's legitimate or not. Let's pretend it is. How could that be used illegitimately in our lifetimes? Remember when Antifa and BLM were trashing cities and in particular Portland kept getting buildings, kept getting set on fire downtown, like federal buildings and, and precincts and police officers, Minneapolis, you had a bunch of fires, you had all this stuff going down. Remember that in the summer of 2020, DC was getting set on fire. And you remember it was all about, there's this, this thing. I don't know if you remember it. Some people referred to it as the Trump trap. The Trump trap was to get him to do what? Send the National Guard to put down the riots. And the second he even intimated that he might send the National Guard to put down these riots that the police weren't doing anything about or sometimes couldn't do much about, he got billed as a dictator. It's the exact same principle. Had he sent the National Guard in, they would have had footage and footage and footage of military-style campaigns against radical activists, scrawny, goofy people standing up for racial justice, and they had him in a decision dilemma trap. So rather than take the route that the British took in the classic decision dilemma of 1930 with Mahatma Gandhi's salt march, what they did instead, what Trump did instead, was he stood down, looked weak, looked unable to stop this cultural revolution unfolding in our cities, and so he had no good options. Send in the National Guard like some people wanted and lose the left in the center and the libertarians who are going to be angry about the police action while satisfying the conservatives and ending up with all of this footage claiming that he's a military-style dictator trying to do a coup on the country, which is exactly what they had set him up for, or let cities burn, in which case everybody gets demoralized, everybody's afraid, businesses, people's lives upended, and now we see on the other end of this that BLM and and Antifa are coming out extremely well from this in these cities because they are doing the exact same thing. Even the police presence that showed up, they're saying, was using tactics that were overboard, and we have cities delivering the million-dollar settlements, now multi-million-dollar settlements, to BLM activists who are actually burning and looting and rioting in the cities because the police showed up to do their jobs, and that was considered to be too much. Why? Because exactly what we're covering— So these tactics are not historical relics. These are communist tactics that are being used right now in the United States and have been used in the United States and Canada and Britain and Australia and New Zealand and all of the rest of the Western world specifically to take down our countries. And the principle here, in addition to your target's reaction is your real action, is to put your your target in a decision dilemma. That's how you get them to either fold or react, to look weak in which case they lose their authority, or to react with strength, in which case they look like a tyrant or a bully. Here's the principle summarized. Design your actions so that your target is forced to make a decision and all of their available options play to your advantage. In other words, damned if you do, damned if you don't. It says, if you design your action well, you can force your target into a situation where they have no good options, where they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. This is known as a decision dilemma. Gandhi's 1930 
present, uh, presented the British authorities with a classic decision dilemma. This is referring to the Salt March. Either beat up and arrest Gandhi and his supporters and turn them into martyrs for the movement or let them march to the sea in open defiance of British authority and the hated Salt Act. Many actions with concrete goals, such as a blockade, there's their sitting in the roads, right? Or a sit-in, require a decision dilemma in order to be successful. A sit-in at a corporate headquarters, for instance, should leave your target with only two options. If they are not willing to meet your demands, one, evict you forcibly and face the negative public attention that this would cause. Again, it's all about the watching audience who doesn't understand what's going on and is going to get it out of context to make you look bad when you react. Or two, wait you out, allowing you to gather more attention and support while business as usual grinds to a halt. When done skillfully, decision dilemmas can win major concessions from powerful targets. So this is the whole thing. That's the whole principle. That's all it says. Put your target in a decision dilemma. Everything that you have experienced in the last several years has involved this core principle. This is at the heart of the whole thing. This is how they extract either react or fold. React and they use your reaction as their real action. It's already written into their script. In other words, they're going to take what happened fully out of the context of their provocation manipulation and use it to get a watching audience to believe you're the bad guy, not them, even though they provoked it. Secondly, you can fold, in which case you look weak, that you can't stand up for yourself. And the idea is that they construct what they're doing so that you're in a decision dilemma. This is what I've called in the past mid-level violence or middle-level violence or provocation. You can see how it works. But here are some, what are some examples? I just mentioned the whole drag queen thing. Drag queen shows up in front of kids. Guess what, buddy? You're in a decision dilemma. You are in middle-level violence right now. This is happening. It's happening around you, and you have to make a decision. Do you let the drag queen do what they're going to do in front of kids, which you know is completely inappropriate, which we know from the Drag Queen Story Hour paper is all kinds of uh, desire to do grooming activity unequivocally. Every time I get accused of being a bad person for using the groomer word, I read a piece for, or two from that paper and ask people what word I should use for it, and nobody has, not a single person yet has had an answer because it puts them back in a decision dilemma. When people read the pervy books that they're putting in the library at school board meetings or on council meetings or on TV, it puts them in a decision dilemma. They have to turn it off and show that the books are really bad, cut the mic, overreact or whatever, or they have to let you read that, in which case everybody who didn't know what's really going on gets horrified, turns it back around on them. All of these examples are, you have to do something. If, if you react against a drag queen, if you hit them, if you, somebody, you know, gets violent, if somebody starts screaming at them, if, you know, there's a big counter protest or whatever, it's, oh, it's rising anti-LGBTQ hate. And they've got the narrative ready to go. They're waiting for the image. They're waiting for the video. They're waiting for the scene. And they're going to uh, use it to turn, turn against you. So you can either react or not react. So the drag queen story hour, the escalating perversion at pride, all of those are examples the increasing raids to, well, rhetoric to raids to indictments of Trump and then people associated with Trump, same thing. Are we just going to let our justice system run rampant like this? Or are we going to stand up and do something? Well, 
J6 is waiting for you in, in its second fashion all over again. I see people on the internet taking this bait all the time. I see with uh, the, after the arrest, or, or the, I should say the sentencing of Enrique Terrico from the Proud Boys, I saw lots of these right-wing chuds all over the internet saying stuff like, well, apparently they're going to throw the book at you like you were a full-blown insurrectionist, whether you are or not, so remember that next time and you might as well be one. Oh, so you're going to just go ahead and step into the reaction mode that they need, and then we're going to have J6 all over again, but this time real enough to where nobody's in doubt, where it doesn't just weird people out. So, uh-huh, it's working. They're baiting people into the reaction, because if you don't react, then what? Well, you just sit there and took it. You just let your country become a banana republic. So the whole thing with Trump, that's another example. The porn books in the libraries, that's another example. Every time those books show up, you're in a decision dilemma. Do you ignore it and just let that sit there and let that stand and let that be and let kids be exposed to that stuff? Or do you show up at which point they're going to slap you with a label book banner? Do you see how integral this is to their activism? But do you also realize that it all has to do with them doing a provocation that is already out of bounds, but it's just below the level of so obviously out of bounds that they can rely on a low information, low engagement audience that they can present what's happening and the reaction to what's happening out of context so that they take the side of the leftist provocateur. Do you understand that this is how their activism works? And your reaction is their real action. What they get you to do when they put you in a decision dilemma where both options benefit them is their real purpose. They are good at this. I can. We just did so many examples. I can give you so many more examples. I gave you the one about the Trump trap already. That was another example. They were burning down our cities. They were using actual violence. People died. Billions of dollars in property damage. And what? We couldn't do anything to secure it because there was a decision dilemma built in because it was allegedly for racial justice. It wasn't really for racial justice, but they had a huge watching audience convinced off of the story of George Floyd that that was what it was about. They had a low information audience that would not understand the context of securing our country with law and order and putting down a violent, literally, insurrection and a violent uh, set of riots, property damage again, deaths. They had the whole thing set up so that if anybody did anything, say, I don't know, Kyle Rittenhouse, what's going to happen? We saw what happened. They went after him like crazy, and public opinion, luckily, he ends up getting acquitted by the courts because the courts are not completely lost. But public opinion turned against him so vigorously, and at the very least, it polarized people around him as a figure. But I still know people who still believe that this poor kid is a murderer, which he's absolutely not, of course. Not only is he literally not, but he was acquitted, and so it's not an appropriate term. In fact, it's libel for people like, I don't know, sitting president and things like that to throw it around. So this is their strategy. It's happening again and again and again. What this is, is the little kid with their finger in your face. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And you're going to see how this plays directly into um, your target's reaction is your real action. So how does that dynamic work? That dynamic works the exact same way as everything they're doing. They are either manipulating public opinion or state power, which follows public opinion. I'm not touching you is leveraging off of mom or dad. Almost every single time, mom or dad is the low information person who doesn't know that the provocation's happening. 
They have no idea that the provocation is happening. But the second you slap that hand down out of your face, which hasn't touched you, they haven't touched you yet. If they touch you, you could say, mom, he touched me first. And all of a sudden, you know, the balance of power goes some other way. He hasn't touched you. So the provocation isn't so clear that it warrants a physical response, but it's so annoying that there's not much you can do. You can't really get away from it. And if you do, your brother's going to laugh at you and you're just going to be humiliated or whatever else. So he's going to humiliate you by getting you to react one way, or you're going to slap his hand and he's going to say, mommy, hit me. And all of a sudden you're the bad guy, low information mom, who doesn't have time for your brother's bullshit antics is all of a sudden going to come down on you like a ton of bricks when that's our justice department, except our justice department's really motivated to take these sides right now. It's even worse than that. That's the idea here. Is there a way to deal with that? Well, I, this is where I loop back and remind you, there is a watching audience. There is a watching audience. The whole thing depends on a watching audience. How do you know it depends on a watching audience? How do you know? How do you know that there has to be some power reservoir of public opinion or state power for any of this to work? How do you know? Because if your brother put his finger in your face and said, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, and you knew nobody was going to find out about it, you'd punch his teeth out of his face. That's why. The only way the whole thing works is if some power reservoir is going to get dropped on your head when they under when they misunderstand what happened because the provocation was left out of the context that they were given when you reacted. You know there must be one. So what does that mean? How do you beat a decision dilemma? How do you beat a mid-level violence provocation? How do you do it? And it's actually much more simple than you think. You have to remember that the watching audience is the thing that matters. The justification of the watching audience is the thing that matters. That might be the public and its opinion. That might be the law. That might be a court. That might be, you have to have your story buttoned up before the watching audience that you are being provoked to action before you take action. At which point you have not only given yourself license to take action if you need, but you have flipped the decision dilemma back on the provocateur. You can verbal jujitsu this back on them or political jujitsu this back on them. What would it be with I'm not touching you? I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. That's your brother. And you say loudly and clearly, not to your mom. You don't go tattle because then you caved and your brother's laughing, and you humiliated yourself, and you look like a tattletale. You say loudly and clearly to your brother such that the watching audience, in this case mom, can hear you. You say, you are provoking me by putting your finger in my face without touching me. It's not acceptable. You either stop or I'm justified in reacting. And when mom hears that, the whole balance of power switches, and then either your brother backs down and puts the finger out of your face, or then you take the next step. Whether, whether that's to go tattle, depending on the situation, whether it's to hit him, whatever the situation happens to be. You make sure the watching audience knows there's a, provo- a provocation happening, that the provocation is unacceptable, how the provocation works, and that you are justified in taking action if it doesn't stop. What you're saying is you technically haven't crossed the line yet, but you're crossing it. And I am telling you that this is unacceptable. And if you continue, then I am going to take you know, do course of action to stop you from doing what you're doing. And 
at that point, the entire balance shifts. They can be the one who cucks out by saying, oh, okay, and he puts his finger down. Or they can be uh, the one who escalates either by continuing or by actually touching you. Does this work in these other situations? Yeah, it turns out it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. It works, although the scale of getting people to believe it might be different. It works every single time to name the dynamic, to point out this is a trap that you're putting me in. You are provoking a response. And if you do this well and you convince people that this is what's happening, then you can be justified. You can, for example, with the sit-in or the march, it's very easy to say, we're going to give you an ultimatum. This activity is not appropriate, and uh, you need to stop this activity. And if you don't stop this activity within a reasonable amount of time, then we're going to take uh, due action, and you put out your press release, and you put out your press conference, and you make sure that the public understands what's really going on. And then you can actually start to take some kind of action where they aren't going to be able to manipulate the story out of context. You can go into your school and you can say, or to your school board meeting or whatever it is about the, the, the library books. And you can say, there's going to be an attempt to say that we're aiming to ban books. We're not interested in banning books. That's not what this is about, but these books are inappropriate. And to prove it, I'm going to read one. Now they're in the decision dilemma. You see how you flipped it back around on them. If you name the dynamic, this book being present is a provocation. It is either going to threaten to harm some children, so we have to take action, or it's going to get us slapped with a illegitimate label of book banner. This is not about banning books. What happens is we end up having to say these things retroactively after we step in the trap, saying them proactively weakens the amount of force that the trap has. Now, these traps are technically reflexive. They are, You're not going to get everybody to understand what's going on. What you want to do is you want to take the steam out of it. The reason the Trump trap was so powerful in 2020 was because so much, much of the population bought into the racial justice narrative of BLM on the back of the death of George Floyd. So much of the population bought into it that Trump did not have an easy time in the people that would even visible riots with CNN saying it's a mostly peaceful riot with 93% peaceful with flames behind him and all only 7% like violence and death and burning buildings and so on, uh, looting and defenses of looting. We're always trying to do this retroactively, but the, the point was that at that point, the public opinion had shifted so hard, so fast from the video of George Floyd that there were very few good options. And we were, we, at that point, all we could do is tread water, do the best that we could. But in general, this is exactly what you have to do is call out the dynamic of the manipulation, point out that it's happening as early and as preemptively as possible so that the reflexive push can't take off. With George Floyd, the reflexive push had already gone into full swing and Unfortunately, they got a long, long runway to get away with a lot of stuff. How do I know that this is right besides that it actually makes sense? And they always talk about the theater and the stage and you want to pull them. You want to pull the full story into the drama. You don't want them pull. You don't want to get pulled into their play. You want to make sure that the context that it's a play in the first place is visible to people. 
Uh, but they write on this one, most of their stuff doesn't have this, but they have a, a section on decision dilemma called potential risks. And it says, in a repressive environment or against a powerful target, you need to be sure that your action actually puts them in a decision dilemma or you may just put yourself at serious risk. If a powerful target would face no negative repercussions for attacking you, then there's no decision dilemma keeping them from doing so. In such a case, either use a less direct method or find a way to change the context. See, take it out of context. By getting celebrity or international supporters to accompany you, have a major media witnessing, etc. So that your target would pay a big price for responding violently. That's what I'm saying. That if mom wasn't involved in the story of I'm not touching you, you would deck your brother straight out. You would just hit him right in the face. You wouldn't even slap his hand. you just hit him right. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Yeah, well, I'm freaking touching you. Whack. Because if a powerful target would face no negative repercussions for attacking you, then there's no decision dilemma keeping them from doing so. Ah, so if I can't have the power of mom or the state or whatever, or public opinion crash down on me, if I don't have a cancel mob coming for me, if I don't have the DOJ coming after me by responding, there's no decision dilemma to keep them from doing so. What's an example of this happening in real life? Have you noticed that public opinion no longer goes with the climate protesters? They block the roads, they sit there. That's actually one of the things they mention as a decision dilemma. You can stop your car and just suck it up and just blah, 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 and wait for them to do their little vigil. Or you can like, you know, try to get them out of the road or hit them with your car or something and you look like a monster and it's all on camera. Everyone knows it's on camera every time. How are there so many videos of this? Because the video is set up from the beginning because that's the whole point is to get you doing something crazy to them. So now what happens? These videos of people getting out of their car, literally I saw one today in Germany of people punching and kicking the pro, not just grabbing them, trying to move them out of the way beating the crap out of them in the road. And people are like, yay, we're sick of climate protesters. Guess what? Guess what? They've overplayed that hand. They've spent themselves. The watching audience is no longer sympathetic to their stupid manipulation and their stupid demonstration. And the watching public mostly wants to see them get their asses kicked. And guess what? When they get their asses kicked, it doesn't go in the activist's favor, just like the potential risk says. So what they say is that you have to rig up the context by getting celebrities or international supporters, or you have to get major media that's going to do a propaganda job for you to watch so that you can gain public support from people who don't know what's going on. But once people know what's going on, they lose the authority to do the manipulation. It actually works. The hard part is in the moment of the provocation, dedicating enough resources to being able to tell how the, what the manipulation is, how the manipulation works, and why you're justified in responding, which you may not have time to do, which may have to build up over many, many, many months, like you see with the climate protesters sitting in the roads. In the moment, it can be very, very difficult to do. But in the long run, we see that this is what works. And if you can convince the relevant watching audience that you are justified in your reaction, realizing that there might be another watching audience that doesn't have that information, then you are going to be free to take action. This is where I get a little upset when I tell people not to, I, I tell people about the principle, your target's reaction is your real action. So don't react. You have to act more smartly. You're not actually in a decision dilemma. You don't have just two options, which are ignore the finger in your face or slap the hand down. You don't just have two options. You have the option to say very clearly, here's a third option. Stop it. But you don't see that one as easily. If you see the way out of the wizard circle or out of the trap, 
you have another option. You're not actually in a decision dilemma. You've got to think more creatively. And people say, James, you're telling people to just stand down and lose preemptively and have no solutions. No, I'm not. I'm telling you to expose the dynamic first, then make it very clear what justified action would be, get public support behind you, and then you can take the action. And that's how we're going to tip this thing back one after another, after another, after another. Look at the example of, say, Billboard Chris going around talking about gender ideology and the transition of kids and puberty blockers and everything. He says over and over again how he how we're going to win on that issue is one conversation at a time. He's going out and he's tipping public support the other way. We're showing the stories of transitioned kids and detransitioners. We're showing these terrible, terrible effects. And we're slowly but more quickly than you might realize, winning over public opinion that this is horrifying. We did the same thing with the drag queens by refusing to react and refusing to react and refusing to react as they escalated the provocation. Eventually, they just started to look crass. At one point, I remember even talking about it. It's like, it's boring. No one wants to see this crap anymore. They it's like they're they're It's like a fruit that expired. It went bad. It went rotted. And it they lost whatever momentum they had. They can keep trying to get it back, but it's sort of, they lost it. You did public opinion shifted away from the the provocateurs by understanding the provocation was going on and people getting sick of it. Same thing with the climate activists in the road. This is what I'm saying. This, This is why it's a very, very interesting and different dynamic now that they're trying to bring back COVID protocols. It's a very interesting dynamic, um, with regard to what would happen if there were going to be riots, Again, if, if there were BLM-style riots again, what would actually happen? I have a feeling there'd be a lot more people outside standing there with bats, like happened in South Philly, making sure nothing goes down. So it's all about the third-party watching audience. But this is what they understand. It's not just about that, which is why a third principle that ties into this, which even is mentioned, is to escalate strategically. So this is beautiful trouble, that ORG principle escalate strategically. And it says, since a target rarely gives in after one action, it is often necessary to strategically increase the pressure on them in a step-by-step escalation that draws upon a diverse mix of tactics. And then they give you a Chinese proverb, a journey of a thousand steps or a thousand miles, I should say, begins with a single step. So it's not enough to provoke because people don't often take the bait after one action. You have to provoke again and provoke again and provoke again. And the, the, the provocation has to escalate every time until it becomes intolerable. You could call this heaping on intolerables. First, you say that Trump is illegitimate and he's all this stuff and there's an insurrection and you have all this J6 stuff and the House Unselect Committee and da-da-da-da-da. Oh, then you raid Mar-a-Lago. Then you start indicting him. Then you start indicting his lawyers. It's an escalating provocation. It wants a reaction. It needs a reaction. First, you have some books in the library. Then there's hundreds of books in the library. Some of the books in the library are sexually explicit. It needs a reaction. You escalate. First, it's a drag queen in modest dress, and the dress gets a little less modest, and the story they're reading gets a little less innocent. Now it's a very graphic gender or sex or sexuality story. Now there's actually dance, they're dancing. And oh, it's just dancing, it's just dancing, but the dancing is getting more and more sexually provocative. Pride, same thing. Oh, we're just trying to celebrate who we are. It's rainbows, it's colors, it's kids, it's blah, blah, blah. Whoops, now that we gotta have some puppy fetish stuff going on here. Whoops, now we have leather. Now we have simulated sex acts were happening in pride this year. Actually, I think some of them weren't even simulated and there's kids staring on escalating provocation. 
Since a target rarely gives in after one action, gives you the reaction that you want that you can use to frame them out as the bad guy in order to be able to do your next round of activism and get policy in place, it is often necessary to strategically increase the pressure on them in a step-by-step escalation that draws upon a diverse mix of tactics. Again, the point of this podcast is to tell you that they have a strategy. This is a political warfare playbook. You can read it. You can learn how they act. You can learn how to point it out to people and diffuse it. And in fact, pointing it out to people, this is an escalating provocation that the goal is to get, say, somebody to get violent against a drag queen. The goal is to end up having a trans person in the highly invisible public eye commit suicide, trans Floyd, and have probably right-wingers celebrated or something horrible. This is the idea. Oh, yeah, we're going to have an escalating series of, of you know, c- conflicts and encounters from hands up, don't shoot in the police until we finally get George Floyd. So it says, when the authorities ignore the demands of the people, people can pressure them to listen and act. But to win, people must keep up the pressure. A target rarely gives in after one action, so it is necessary to strategically increase the pressure on them in a step-by-step escalation that draws upon a diverse mix of tactics. And I'm not going to go to it, but it gives us another principle here. Choose tactics that support your strategy. So it's very strategic that they're doing this. The target will try to wait uh, each pressure tactic out, but a well-organized campaign will then up the pressure in a new way. Think about the drag queen thing that I just described. Each new action reemphasizes the larger demand, builds strength to take the next escalated step, and reminds the target that the people are not going to leave them alone until they give in. The 2017 Make uh, Busheni Great Again MBUGA campaign in Western Uganda offers one great example of a campaign that used stage-by-stage strategic escalation to win their demands. Their target, the elected district chairperson, the demand institute a service commission, an office that handles government worker-related issues for Bisheni District. I assume I'm saying that right. First, they presented their grievances to the elected chairperson through a table dialogue. He promised they were working on it. One month later, nothing changed, so they opted to file a lawsuit against the local government. The chairperson laughed at it and mocked the citizens for wasting their time and money. For the next five months, the case went back and forth. At every hearing, it was postponed. Local citizens became angry and escalated the pressure. First, they again with the watching audience. First, they chose a march and demonstration to capture the attention of higher-up leaders who could pressure the court to take the case, and then a month later, they instituted a direct action that shut down the district headquarters. Citizens left behind placards demanding a service commission. MBUGA also told the judiciary that unless there was action, when they came back, they would shut down the courthouse too. Haven't you heard exactly these kinds of things from leftists and almost everything they do. No justice, no peace. There will be no peace until you give us what we want. Seeing the determination of the people and worried about an escalating scandal, the judiciary acted quickly. The case was heard in court in July 2017 and citizens won the case. Victory. The MBUGA campaign escalated from dialogue to legal action to street protest to a building takeover to a credible threat to come back and shut it all down. 
the campaign escalated not just the militancy of the of the tactic, but also the scale and number of participants in the action. And wisely, organizers only escalated once the majority of participants realized it was necessary and were on board to take the next step. See, they don't act until they know that they have public consensus going to go with them. And what happens is at each step, people fail to point out how the provocation works and that it's going to escalate, and therefore public opinion went along with the activists as opposed to public opinion seeing the activists for what they were, which is pulling an extortion. Specific escalation steps, they tell us, may vary from campaign to campaign. The coalition of Emokali workers won higher wages for farm workers in Florida by very strategically escalating from grassroots organizing to community-wide work stoppages against local growers to hunger strikes and eventually to a nationwide boycott against a global brand. Wangari Mathai's Greenbelt Movement in Kenya escalated through a strategic series of steps from planting trees all the way to catalyzing a resistance that forced a dictator out of office. One, planting trees with rural women. Two, placing political meaning on these trees. Three, writing letters against the privatization of public parks and forests. Four, going on hunger strike. Five, occupying the parks to prevent their closure. Six, stripping naked to demand release of political prisoners. Seven, mass actions to end Moy dictatorship. Whatever the specific steps, they say, the principle is the same and summed up nicely by Saul Alinsky in Rules for Radicals. Of course, that's where they got these ideas. Keep the pressure on, never let up. Creativity and agility are key here. As Alinsky says, keep keep trying new things to keep the opposition off balance. As the opposition masters one approach, hit them from the flank with something new. A tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag. Don't become old news. This links, by the way, to a key principle they add, define hardcore strategically. Sometimes the escalation needs to be bigger than an individual campaign. It is a social movement-wide shift, a shift more in worldview or the broad culture of your movement, say from reform to revolution, or an armed struggle that comes out of the jungles to pursue an electoral path, or that goes back to the people and recommits to the the grassroots. At such junctures, what is often critical are the strategic choices of the movement's leadership, specifically how they model what it means to be hardcore. So the examples I gave are pretty pertinent, though, that you're going to escalate strategically at each stage. The idea is that there is a decision dilemma involved. If they are not giving in, you escalate strategically and you make the pressure on choosing reaction higher because your target's reaction is your real action. This article also lists some potential risks. They say it requires a lot of patience and strategic focus to keep your team together. When you are less strategic, you can lose people's support. Participants need to understand why each additional step is needed and at what level or time it will be useful so they are willing to take that additional risk with you. If your campaign does not escalate fast enough, it is likely to become boring and reduce the morale of those who stand for your cause. If, it, if your campaign escalates too fast, you might take on well-equipped opponents that are prepared to delegitimize your position or discredit you for lack of public support. And that's exactly what happened to the drag queen and the pride thing, which is why those things are seriously on the rocks. They've burned up so much goodwill with the people, and it has a lot to do with the fact that they escalated too fast because we continually didn't take a bait that they were almost positive we were going to take. They got desperate. They overreacted. And they made it look really, really bad for them. 
This is why it's probably the case that masks and BLM and all of this, again, are not going to fly with the public the way that they flew the first time because people are more hip to what's going on. So the point of this podcast, just to summarize again, was that you have these interlock. First of all, there's this website called Beautiful Trouble. It is beautifultrouble.org where they give you toolboxes explaining how they do their activism. If you understand their activism, you can show that it's a manipulation that's playing off of a third party that's a powerful reservoir like the state or public opinion, which are tied together, that it's using tools like the media in an illegitimate way. You can actually expose the fact that these provocations are provocations that are designed to operate in specific ways. You can unmask the operation as such, and thus you can destroy the cap- the capacity for people to get swept up in the reflexive movement. They want an out-of-context moment, say George Floyd dying, to sweep up a movement across the world that's like a fire got lit, and you can't put it out. Well, if there's doubt that it's legitimate, the fire doesn't sweep as wide, it doesn't go as crazy. In other words, the reflexive environment doesn't manifest. They can only get away with what they get away with in a reflexive environment. If you have enough of this exposed so there's no reflexive environment, the reflexive environment doesn't manifest, they don't have the public support to pull off the actions that they want to pull off that are much more radical, that are excused by either your reaction, which is usually the thing taken out of context to spark a line of direct action by them, or some other thing being taken out of context that they use to uh, generate reflexive uh, environment in which they can move the ball. So the goal is to expose these manipulations, to turn over the decision dilemma back on them, to show that they're escalating strategically, to predict that they're going to escalate strategically in the next step. And when that they do, that the goal is to get people to react in particular ways and the way that those reactions, whatever they are, giving in, reacting violently, yelling, losing your cool, you know, scattering or movement on the anti-woke side has certainly scattered lately, um, dooming out all of these things. You can actually predict that they're trying to do these. These are intelligent, deliberate operations. And when you expose that they are operations and how they work and how they're designed and how they operate and how they're illegitimate, you can actually turn that watching audience, which is the foil to the whole thing. It is the power base for the whole thing against the manipulator. So I just wanted to tie together three of these principles, mentioning, I guess, a couple of others that they reference, to give you an idea of how comprehensive the strategies of the left is, how many of the things that you've experienced in the past three to five years have explicitly followed this playbook, and how, while in some cases it's difficult to see what could have happened differently because things were set up very well, the reflexive environment got very big and powerful or so on, but in general that you actually, we do actually have options that throws cold water on their ability to pull these mass actions. In other words, we can understand the political warfare environment that they're creating and rather than being caught in a decision dilemma or rather than getting caught in what I've called a dialectical trap, we can actually call out the target. We can identify the target that they're after, say how they're going after the target and thus diffuse the power of their operation. What's an example of that? Well, rising anti-LGBTQ hate is this huge narrative. They're trying to gin up examples. They used the pride stuff, the provocations to gin up examples. It turns out they didn't get them. I think some of that has to do with the fact that I warned about it and that got a lot of play. Um, 
And then Charlie Kirk and Glenn Beck warned about it and they got much bigger audiences than I do. Uh, and that probably helped diffuse some of the energy and helped people become suspicious of it. Uh, but simultaneously the trans shooter that happened in Nashville really kind of pulled a plug on them with their escalating provocation because all of a sudden the ball hopped the wrong way and things looked really bad and awkward for them because we ended up with a meme on our side of things like trans violence is violence. And all of a sudden the, the, the escalating provocation started to look really bad. Public support started to fall out. But what you have is this ability to understand these things that are happening and to start to identify and call them out. I was giving you an example, rising anti-LGBTQ hate, sorry. So the point with the rising anti-LGBTQ hate is that they're trying to create a narrative. Well, you can identify the target. If you actually read a lot of the articles that they wrote, go Google the term anti-LGBTQ hate or rising anti-LGBTQ hate. What you'll find is a preponderance of the articles happen to mention Elon Musk and his acquisition of Twitter and the fact that hate speech is allowed on Twitter. And they've had this, you know, organization connected to media matters and the, uh, whatever the, something for count the, the something for countering digital hate. I forgot what it was called the council for countering digital hate or something, the association for counseling, countering digital hate. Anyway, they had all of this stuff and almost every single article mentioned that Elon Musk's free speech. Twitter is the problem. Huh? Now we see with the ADL and other things that there are massive pressure campaigns to try to put the censorship back on Twitter. So you can assume that the point isn't to argue about whether or not something is an anti-LGBTQ hate crime. They want that argument because it makes it feel more real and pressing and more reflexive if people are arguing about, yeah, it is. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. Meanwhile, their real target is to put leverage on organizations and institutional uh, outfits, including the government, to lean on Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter so that the censorship comes back. So you know one of the targets is whether it's Elon Musk specifically, who they named many, many times, or whether it's um, the idea of maintaining control over hate speech, misinformation, disinformation, blah, blah, blah. In other words, censorship. You know that the goal is to censor speech. The whole thing about whether drag queens are acceptable is being parlayed into a, or the, the term groomer. That's what the thing for countering digital hate was all about. The, was the term groomer appropriate? Blah, blah, blah. Oh my God. Let's clutch our pearls. Lauren Boebert said it. And, and, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene said it and James Lindsay said it. And here's these other like seven or eight people who said it way too many times. Oh my God. Okay. Groomer. Is that even appropriate? Well, the target was that Elon Musk allowed us people on Twitter and when he shouldn't have. And so obviously the goal was to create a narrative that justifies censoring social media in order to counter hate speech. And you can actually see these things happening with misinformation, disinformation. Again, you can see these things happening. And if you call them out, people lose trust in what's going on. And they don't end up getting the environment that creates the public opinion mandate that allows them to implement these kinds of policies. Believe it or not, it works. It actually works. Naming the dynamic, going through these strategic manuals and pointing out, here's how it's consistent with something that is in writing as their strategy. Here is the target. This anti-LGBTQ hate rising narrative is all about controlling speech. So guess what? Every time they bring it up, you don't argue about it. You say you still just want to control speech. Hate speech is fake. We're not going down this road. You don't get to censor us. And you just keep the issue on their target, which is censorship, over and over and over again. And it takes the steam out of their manipulative tactic. And it works. So 
This podcast was uh, geared toward convincing you that they are strategic, that they have strategy manuals that you can read for free called Beautiful Trouble, for example, at beautifultrouble.org. You can learn their political warfare tactics. You can learn to beat their political warfare tactics by understanding them and mostly by calling them out because they all work by manipulating a third-party audience into believing that they are the good guys and you are the bad guys by getting you to react in a certain way that either delegitimizes you uh, directly by giving you to getting you to give in uh, or go away or give up or that delegitimizes you in the indirect sense by getting you to react and framing you to a low information out of context audience that's going to misunderstand what happens and let them run a ball that they shouldn't be allowed to run in the first place. 